Uh, definitely, uh, we pray for you often. In fact, uh, even this this past Sunday, uh, we took some time on Sunday morning worship uh, service and, and prayed specifically for uh, for you, uh, for our brothers and sisters here in New York, our partners in ministry, and uh, so many of our so many of our people are just constantly praying for you and encouraged by uh, the work that the Lord is doing here uh, in New York City. So, with that, let me uh, let's pray, and we're going to dive into uh, the Word. Heavenly Father, we'll be, we praise you. We marvel at your goodness. Uh, we thank you for this wonderful day, the day, Lord, that you have made, uh, the day that you have given us, Lord, the day that you have given us the opportunity to wake up this morning and to walk on your earth and to breathe your fresh air and to serve you. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity we have this morning to gather together as the church as those, as the elect, as those who, whom you have saved, uh, redeemed, and uh, brought into a right relationship with you through the through the death of your only Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that uh, this morning that we will, our hearts will be new, our minds will be conformed to the teaching of your word, that, Lord, we will look at your word as a mirror and uh, compare ourselves to it, and, uh, Lord, learn more about who you are, and uh, who we are in our desperate need for Christ. Uh, we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, if you will, turn with me uh, very quickly to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, our text this morning is actually going to be in Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2. Uh, but uh, in our text, the, the key phrase, the, the main premise uh, of the text that we're going to spend the bulk of our time in, uh, the author is addressing with his readers uh, in chapter 12, chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, to, to run with endurance, uh, the race of a lifetime, uh, the, the character of a Christian life run well. Uh, so before we get to chapter 12, we're, we're going to spend just a few moments in chapter 10 so we can appreciate the context in which the author was writing, in which his readers were, were reading, in which his readers were, were living out their lives. Uh, so if you're there, uh, Hebrews 10 uh, beginning in verse 32, we're going to read down through verse 36. The author of Hebrews writes, But recall the former days, when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated, for you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance. When you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. But here the, the writer is addressing uh, the race his readers were in the midst of running. He's describing the lives of the Christians to whom he's writing, and he keys in on the word endure. We see it in verse 32, and again in verse 36. The writer of the book of Hebrews was writing to Jewish people who have made a public profession of faith. These professing Christians had come under intense persecution. But we read the evidence of that persecution in chapter 10, where he encourages his readers to recall the former days, uh, to look back at what did they, what they did in those former days how they endured hard struggles and sufferings. They were publicly exposed to reproach, publicly exposed to affliction. And instead of shrinking back 
They stood alongside others who uh, were persecuted. They ministered to those who were in prison on account of their faith. They suffered financial loss and they suffered the plundering of their property. And the author reminds them that they suffered in these ways because at the time they were convinced that they had already received a greater and an abiding possession than anything this world could offer them. In short, they were zealous. That they were zealous believers on fire for the Lord for the Lord, and the world hated him for it. But you know this Christian. Perhaps you are this Christian. Perhaps at one point you were this zealous Christian. And you remember what it was like to, to not live in fear. Because nothing mattered compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Those were the former days. But now the writer extols them. He encourages them. He pleads with his readers to not throw away their confidence. He tells them that they're in need of endurance in order to finish this race. That they need to press on, to, to not stop midway, to not punch out. The persecution they suffered at the beginning of their race but persisted and promised to become even more intense. And as they were ostracized from, from their communities and their families and their friends, as they continued to be so different than, than the world around them, the temptation crept in to, to go back. To, to seek relief in their old ways, to seek relief from the world by just blending into it. Mm. Some from this Jewish Christian community did walk away. They abandoned Christ. Mm. The others were, were shrinking back, going back to or adding on old customs, wavering and struggling due to a lack of endurance. I understand, I saw it even, the New York City Marathon uh, is today. Uh, there's an annual 15K run in Jacksonville called the River Run that happens every year. In normal years, about 16,000 people come out and participate. Uh, I know that that's just a fraction of the New York City Marathon, but it's a large race for our city. Hmm. The first time I ran this race, uh, which was also the last time I ran this race, <laughs> I began training with a with a friend who was a, a an avid runner, and he laid out this three month running schedule for us uh, to follow. And he and I ran a few times, uh, mostly shorter distances. And as the months progressed in training, uh, he continued to train as he always did, and and I continued to to not train as I always did. Race day comes, a gun goes off, and and we're off to the races. Uh, first mile, I'm, I'm looking really good. Uh, over the bridge, the first bridge out of town, I'm, I'm hanging in with a lot of people around me. Uh, about that time, I began to think, man, look, I must be one of those 30-year-old running prodigies. <laughs> blessed with a gift to run. And then about the third or fourth mile hits, uh, and I, it was as if I like smacked right into a brick wall. <laughs> At that point in the race, the, the course uh, snakes through these, these old neighborhoods along the river. And the residents set up water and, and refreshment stands uh, along the race path. And there's a distinct possibility uh, during that section or maybe even many after that I 
that I stopped at every one of those refreshment streets along the way. <laughs> and then at the end of the race, it finishes on what they call the Green Mile, which is a large green bridge that's heading back into the downtown area. And at one point, as I was ascending the bridge, I actually sat down on the bridge and pondered what it was I was doing in my life. <laughs> my friend that finished the race in the top whatever percentage he always did, I, uh, I didn't finish strong, but I did finish the race. Christian, that, that's a, a ridiculous story uh, about a guy making a fool out of himself in, in a race. However, it's a very sad and yet not tragic illustration of what many Christian lives tend to look like on a regular basis. So many of them are in desperate need of endurance. We start strong at points in our Christian race when we show strength, we show determination. But if we're honest, at many times, it's difficult to distinguish us from the neighbors along the roadside who are passing out refreshments. Hmm. Brothers and sisters, this morning, we're going to find in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, four enduring disciplines of the Christian race. Four enduring disciplines of the Christian race that will help us not only finish the race, but Lord willing, we'll finish strong. Will help us to finish with victory. The first enduring discipline is recognize that you are not alone. Recognize that you are not alone. Look with me at chapter 12, verse 1. And we're going to take each one of these disciplines one at a time. Verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. And we're going to stop there. The Greek word for, for witness here is actually where we get our word martyr. The Greek doesn't necessarily mean someone who has been killed for the faith, although it does carry a similar significance to that. It does mean one is bearing a testimony, but even to the point of death if necessary. But two questions come to mind about this great cloud of witnesses that verse 1 calls out. Uh, one, who are these witnesses? And two, what are they witnessing? Who are they and what are they witnessing? First, who are they? In chapter 11, our, our writer, uh, after telling his readers they are in need of endurance in chapter 10, that uh, gives about 50 different examples of Old Testament saints, example after example, saint after saint, who endured to the finish, who faithfully lived a life of faith. The great cloud is exemplified in chapter 11, verse 32, where the writer says, time would fail to tell of the examples that have gone before witnessing or gone before testifying. And what are they testifying of? On the surface, it looks as though these Old Testament saints are watching us. They're, they're witnessing us run our race. As if they're sitting in the stands of, of, a large, of a large stadium as we Christians are running on the track below. But that's actually not what's happening here. That's not what he's saying. They aren't watching this, not at all. 
their witnesses or testimonies are the accounts of their own individual races already run. Testimonies of how they endured to the end, how they finished and found victory. Really, they're, they're testimonies of the faithfulness of the Lord, are they not? His ability, his desire to bring them to victory, bring them to completion. I'd love to walk through a number of them, but time will, it will only permit one. Look with me, chapter 11, verse 4. This is amazing. Chapter 11, verse 4 says, By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commended him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, Though he died, he still speaks. Hmm. Who's speaking? Abel is speaking. Notice that it says he still speaks. Notice the tense of that verb. Present tense. Abel still speaks. Abel had been dead for about 6,000 years to this point, hmm. and he was still speaking. Brother and sister, he still speaks today. Abel is currently testifying to us. Say, endure, Christian. It is better to be commended by God and be murdered than to be commended by anyone or anything else. Mm. And that's the beauty of Scripture. We are able to read it, to be discipled by it, by the Old and New Testament saints. We're able to read of them and read of their, their hardships, read of their failures, Read how the, the Lord kept them and preserved them and, and faithfully delivered them to victory. And these witnesses, they don't only in, encourage us to endure, but would they tell us how to endure? Mm. Uh, I'm a Floridian. But the first time I saw enough snow to make a snowball out of, I was in my late 20s. Mm. Two friends uh, and I flew up to New Hampshire to hike the White Mountains. In February, we hit the trail for a, a three-day hike, and the trail was, was gorgeous, except we had a big problem because the fresh snow was on the ground, and it was difficult to, to stay on the path. It was difficult to, to see the path or know where we were. Uh, we couldn't distinguish the trail from everything around us. And as I said, we were from Florida. We didn't have the right gear. We didn't know what we were doing. And I kept venturing off the trail. Every time I would venture off the trail, I'd find myself standing to my knees in snow. Uh, about uh, half day into a three-mile hike, uh, I'm standing in a foot of snow with 100 pounds on my back, thinking, what in the world am I doing here? Uh, I, I think I'm going to die. I need to turn around before that happens. It was right about this time that the, the sun seemed to kind of like shine through the trees. And two angels come walking up the path behind us. They weren't really angels. <laughs> they were just two guys who knew what they were doing. And they stopped for a moment and they showed us what to do. Uh, meaning they really just kind of said, hey, uh, just follow in our footsteps. Right? Just follow behind us and step where we step and you're going to be okay. Uh, we did that very intentionally. Walked in their boot prints all the way up till we got past the tree line. Being very careful to not stray from the path that they laid before us. In the same way, really, the saints of old, 
speak to us today. A witnessing of the faithfulness of the Lord, encouraging us to remain steadfast, to, to endure the race, and showing us how to endure, acting as guides on the path before us. Psalm 119, 105 says, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, a, a light unto my path. Listen to their testimonies, Christian. Listen to the instructions laid out before you in God's word. And when you begin to lose faith, when you get desperate and think, just not sure I can go on like this. There has to be an easier way. That there has to be a better way. Because those, those times do come, do they not? Mm. I think many of us who have been a Christian longer than a day has experienced those times. Listen to 100-year-old Abraham. When his life is telling you that it's best to trust in the Lord's promises. Because he is always faithful to deliver. His ways and his timing is always better than ours. Mm -hmm. Or maybe you're feeling the, the weight of the world and, and the leaders of this world demanding that you show allegiance to it and to them. Demanding that you deny the truth that we find in God's word. That you deny his ways. That you deny him. Demanding that you follow after lies. Listen to Daniel. When he tells you, don't bow down to the world. Do not deny the Lord. Remain steadfast. Don't hide. Humble yourself before the almighty God of heaven and earth, just as you always have. And catch this. At the end of Hebrews 11, verse 39, the writer says, In all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had proved, provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Hmm. Every one of the Old Testament saints died, not having known exactly who the Messiah would be, having not fully seen God's plan of salvation. And yet they were faithful to endure to the end. To run the race of faith. And their faith was in Christ. And in, they didn't even know who he was exactly. Only that God had promised a Messiah. And that he would bring salvation to his people. Mm -hmm. Follower of Christ this morning. We know who he is. The Old Testament saints were saved by faith. As they endured to the end. Looking forward to the promised Messiah. We, Christian, are saved by faith as we endure to the end, looking back to the cross, back to the resurrection of Jesus Christ our Lord, back to the same promised Messiah that they look forward to. And by the way, we also get to look forward to his return, to his glory. And that's where our hope lies. Our hope lies, does not lie rooted in this world. It does not lie in somewhere along the way of our, of our race. Our hope is rooted, planted firmly in eternity with Christ. Brother and sister, we are not alone. The race we run today has been run before us over and over and over again. 
This great cloud of witnesses has traveled the road of faith before us. They have blazed a trail ahead of us for us to follow, for us to read and study, for us to be strengthened in our endurance. The first enduring discipline is to recognize that you are not alone. The second, you must lighten your load. You must lighten your load. We see it right here in verse 1. The writer says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. But here the readers have given instruction to lighten their load in two distinct ways. But notice, we're to lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. The, the weight and sin are actually two separate things. First, the weight. Uh, to the recipients of this letter, the weight included those elements of Judaism that they were running back to, a works-based righteousness that they were that they were holding on to. The weight of works is a, is a heavy weight. It's a heavy weight that we cannot bear. But Matthew 23, 4 tells of the Pharisees that they would tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and then lay them or heat them on people's shoulders. These were the weights these Hebrew readers were picking back up. They were reverting back to elements and teachings of Judaism. And by so doing, they were taking on a workspace righteousness. Again, that is a load that we cannot handle. But that's just one example. The Jewish readers like us would have been carried or distracted by other weights in their lives. These things that weigh us down are not necessarily sinful. Uh, they can even be good things. One of the most common questions I, I get from young men in our church uh, is, how do I manage my time? How can I be a faithful husband and father of four and a churchman and an employee all at the same time? How, how can you keep up? One simple answer over the, over the years uh, is the things that were once important to me uh, are no longer. Mm. I had to cut them out. But the word weight here literally means bulk or mass. It, it's a direct reference to body weight. Uh, we all get this. When we watch the Olympic Games, uh, we we see the, the chiseled muscle machine running down the track, uh, wearing as little encumbrance as possible in order to post the fastest time, in, in order to win, in order to gain victory. And not just to finish the race, but to excel in the race, to dominate the race. And that's what the author of the text is driving at here. He's telling his readers and us to, to shed the weight, evaluate your life, and cut out anything that might be weighing you down. Cut out anything that might be a distraction to you. But to use a, another hiking illustration, because I only have the one running illustration. Uh, <laughs> I was on a different hike with some guys. Uh, I used to hike a lot before I had kids. Uh, that was something actually that I cut out because um, it took so much time. Uh, we were almost a full day into uh, this hike. It was in Tennessee. And we had just ascended a, a, a mountaintop uh, when one of the guys sat down and just, uh, just said, you know, guys, I, I'm, I can't go on any further. So my knees really bother me. I just can't make it. Uh, at that point, we we weren't actually very far from our from our first camp spot, and 
So I said, hey, uh, let's open his back. We'll we'll take all the weight out of his pack and we'll just split it up among us uh, so we can get to our camp. And that's when I figured out what the problem was. But do you remember the anybody who's seen the movie Mary Poffins? Uh, the scene where they're in the nursery and um, she puts her carpet bag on the table and the two kids are watching and she opens it up and she starts pulling things out of it, right? And she pulls out this uh, this hat stand out of her carpet bag and she pulls out like this giant plant out of her carpet bag and a mirror and she's just pulling one thing after another as the kids like mouths are gaped open watching her do this. Uh, as we were standing there, uh, mouths gaped open. I, I, I thought that maybe like we were just like in Mary Poppins for a moment, all this stuff coming out of his bag. Uh, we pulled a lantern out, like a full-size hatchet peeing out of this guy's bag. Uh, the more items we pulled out, the more I thought were in there. At one point, I thought we lost one of our guys in there. So big stuff out. It was nice to have a lantern at the campsite, I, I will admit. Um, it was a bonus to have a full-size hatchet in case like uh, we got stranded and had to build a shelter like the Swiss Family Robinson or something. But, but were those items necessary? Hmm. Did, did the weight of those things hinder his hike more than they had the potential to help? Hmm. If the things in our lives, even the good things, cause us to come up and limp in the Christian race, we must get rid of them. We must purge the superfluous things in our lives that are weighing us down, that are hindering our ability to run as fast and hard for Christ as possible. It's considered a very good thing to love and care for your children. And for those who are parents in the room, if you carry the weight of your child's salvation or lack thereof, it will crush you. That is not your weight to bear. That's as far as I'll go in, in naming things. Uh, because as I mentioned, many of the weights aren't actually sinful. What might be a heavy weight to me, uh, maybe a, a light weight for Joey. What might be a heavy weight for Joey might be a light weight for Manny. You name it. Whatever the, the weight, it is going to be different for all of us. Mm -hmm. And if it is distracting you, and drawing you away from the Christian race, but from time in the Word, from fellowship with the body of Christ, from discipleship, from rooting out sin, from growing in godliness, from worship, then you, I, we must cut it out. We must get rid of it. We must shed it. We must lose the extra weight. We must also... Get rid of the sin that clings so closely to us. Remember, the original readers of this letter were, were struggling under the weight of persecution. As they struggled, some began to, to fall away. They left the faith and they went back to the easier and more familiar life of Judaism. Others added back or clung to old works-based customs. Anytime we as Christians add workspace righteousness or acts to our lives, the effect will always be without fail. We will divert our faith away from Christ and place it on our works ourselves. Hmm. This is sin. Why do they do this? Well, why, why do we do this? 
it feels good hmm. for for a time. Why? Because I can't control the, the hard and difficult work of sanctification that God is working out in me in this Christian race. I can't control that alienation from those around me. I can't control the pain and suffering. I can't control the discipline. A life of faith is a life of consistent humbling of self and self and building up in righteousness, hmm. trusting in Christ. But I can, or I think I can, I deceive myself in thinking that I can control my words. When we add works to our daily race, we're adding elements of control to our life. When we add works, we're really adding things in our lives that, that make us feel good about ourselves. Hmm. Instead of being humble, we are building self up. All the while, we become less faithful. Demonstrating a lack of trust in the Lord. Again, this is sin, and we must cut it out. We must get rid of it. But you and I know that's not the only sin that clings so closely, is it? The life of a Christian is a life of casting off of sin, recognizing, repenting of sin. But the word in the verse clings so closely means that sin encompasses us. It entangles us. It is skillfully surrounding us. Uh, the picture here that we can have in our minds is uh, the runner uh, who at the beginning of the race uh, resembles Pigpen from the Peanuts um, comic strip, completely encompassed, engulfed by sin. And as he runs down the track, a steady stream of filth and, and sin garments will be splayed out behind him as he runs. With every step, but with every stride, he gets lighter and faster and more determined to reach the finish line. That's the image we as faithful Christians are to strive for. Not the image of a God who instead of pushing through the pain and, and continuing to run, stops at every roadside refreshment stand to see what the world has to offer. Hmm. Romans 6, 12 and 13 says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. The wording of these verses deliver a, a word picture, a picture of one who is presenting themselves to the almighty God of all creation with an offering of self. And as we offer self before him, coming before his throne, what are we presenting to him, what will you present? But not just the one to me. This is an active, ongoing presentation of self before a holy and righteous God, consistently evaluating our lives, not before the world, not before each other, but evaluating our lives in light of the perfect standard of his word. And in that process, believer, we will recognize the sin so closely and we will cut it out. Hmm. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9, 26 and 27, he said, I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. I discipline my body and I keep it under control. What does this look like? The writer of Hebrews enumerates ways 
uh, that his readers and us should, that, that we need to put into action. A, a life of living holy, casting off sin. We find this all throughout the New Testament. The author will give us uh, doctrine, he'll give us theology, and then he gives us, here's how you do it, right? We see that in Hebrews 13. I'll just list a couple of them. He, he actually lists out a string of commands, one after another after another. In verse 1, he says, let brotherly love continue, right? Don't stop. Don't stop loving one another. In fact, we are to be known by our love for one another, right? As the world looks in us, on us, they should see something different. They should see something special. They should see something they never recognized before out there in our love for one another. He goes on, verse 2, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. I actually just witnessed this uh, in the bagel shop just, a, I don't know, an hour ago. As Joey befriended a, a man who lives in the neighborhood, and he offered, uh, he talked with him, and then invited him to church, and he invited him in a unique way. He said, hey, uh, I'm Joey. This is my church. Hey, we'd love to serve you. We would love to come alongside him, right? That is foreign to the world. That's foreign here in New York, by the way. That's foreign in Jacksonville. That is foreign to the world around us. They do not know what to do with that when Christians come alongside and say, hey, I'd like to serve you. He goes on. Verse 3, remember those in prison as, as those as though in prison with them. Right? What an amazing testimony of love. As those who have been put in prison on account of their faith, those who have been ostracized from their community, those who have been abandoned by their families, we come alongside them as though we also are suffering with them. Verse 4, let marriage be held in honor among all. Let the marriage bed be undefiled. Man, this is a way to live holy love. This is a way to cast off the sin that clings so closely to us. If you are holding mirrors in honor, the world will notice it. Oh man, they will notice it. If you are keeping your marriage bed undefiled, whether you currently have a marriage bed or you desire to have a marriage bed in the future, if you are doing that and holding it undefiled, man, you will look different in the world. And what, what happens when we do that? God is glorified for it. Mm. Verse 5, keep your life free from money. Mm. The, the world can be defined by a love for money. And we see that in 2 Timothy 3, that a love for money drives the world, drives the one who's deceiving, drives the deceiver. And he goes on throughout the chapter instructing his readers over and over again to, to double down on holiness, double down on casting off the sin that clings so closely to us, to be meticulous about holiness. I was listening to a podcast about a professional mountain climber, and he was talking about the links that he goes to to prepare to summit the tallest mountains in the world. And he was so serious, so meticulous, about being prepared, he would cut the tags off of his clothing and off of his gear in order to save just a, a mere 50 grams, about two ounces of weight mm -hmm. uh, as he prepares to go up these large mountains. It's a great feat to some of those mountains, but it's, an, it's a perishable wreath that he receives. Mm -hmm. Christian, are you meticulously 
cutting the weight and the sin that clings so closely to you, that that's weighing you down, that that saps your endurance. It makes it seem as though you can't take another step, much less strive for victory. Because it's, it's an imperishable wreath that we run for. Christian, gain endurance. Strengthen your endurance. Remember that you are not alone. Lighten your load. Enduring discipline number three, run your own race. Run your own race. But look with me again at our passage. The writer says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and... Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And this is the main command in our passage, to run with endurance. But pay attention to the race we are to be running, which is the race that is set before us. We do not chart the course of our race. We don't sit down with God when he saves us and look at the map of our lives and collaborate on what our race is going to look like. We don't get to say, hey, I'm a better runner uh, when I run along the coastline, hmm. uh, give me a little trial bridge here, uh, maybe a, a small suffering divot here. But but really, Lord, I'm the best runner when I'm on predictable flat ground. Hmm. Yeah, that doesn't happen. It, does it? No, it doesn't happen. He chooses when we run the beautiful scenic roads. And he chooses when we will run over giant bridges that exhaust us. Hmm. He chooses when we will run up snow-covered mountains and when we will run in the midst of a storm. This race we run has been designed by him for his glory and, and for our good. We see that in Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for what? Good. For those who are called according to his purpose, there will be some commonality in our races. Every follower of Christ begins his or her race at salvation. And every follower of Christ ends his or her race at the same finish line. Death, or uh, Lord willing, when Christ returns. Hmm. Every race will not be a sprint, but instead it'll be a race for a lifetime. Hmm. The Hebrew Christians, they, they ran the sprint well. They shot out of the gate. They, they took the big lead, but they flagged at the midway point. The continuing trials and persecution sapped their strength, diminished their endurance. Every one of our races will produce trials of various kinds, James 1, 2. And when, when we face those trials, when we come upon hurdles and depend on our own strength, our own abilities, our own works, we will fail every time. We will grow discouraged. We will grow weary. We must run this race of a lifetime that has been laid out before us in the power and in the strength of our Lord. We must run by faith. Psalm 37 says, The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their strength in time of trouble. Psalm 22, But you, O Lord, do not be far from me. O my strength, hasten to help me as he cries out to God. He called us to this race that we run. He designed each of our races specifically for us. He gives us the, the strength to endure the race. And he uses the race to accomplish his work in us, sanctifying us, 
but bringing us to completion in the day of Jesus Christ, 1 Thessalonians 5.23. While there's commonality in all of our races, at the same time, we are all running unique races, designed and laid out by God. We must be careful to not get distracted by comparing our race to that of others. Hmm. We have different weights that we struggle with. We have different sin struggles. We will each face varying degrees of trials and suffering. And again, as we continue to, to face, to feel like aliens and outcasts in the world, as we're running this race, it, it's tempting to take a peek at the world around us and think, yeah, I'm killing myself here. But running at 8 a.m. on Saturday morning, and they look so comfortable in their lounge chairs eating donuts. <laughs> The psalmist in Psalm 73 testifies to us, witnesses to us about this, as he was tempted to compare his race to those in the world. He says in verse 3, For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Man, at times, or perhaps many times, uh, this is a strong temptation, is not But to, to look at the world around us and think, hey, why do they have it so easy? Why do the wicked have it so easy and, and I have it so hard? Later, he tells us to, to how to deal with this temptation in verse 16. He says, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until... Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned it. When we allow the word to drive our understanding, we will turn from jealousy and envy of the world to compassion for those whose end is destruction. We will turn from a desire to be like them to a desire to show them Christ so they can be like him. Mm. The psalmist details for us that we are to respond to God's word with humility and repentance. He says, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in my heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward, you will, you will receive me to glory. The, the life of faith is a life in which we don't compare our race to that of others, but instead we seek to faithfully finish the race God has given us all the way to glory. You are not alone, Christians. Lighten your load, run your own race, and enduring discipline number four, Focus on the great example. Focus on the great example. Look at me, verse 2. He writes, looking to Jesus, the, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne. If you've ever run a race, you know that it does not go well with you to run the entire race. Uh, looking at your feet or looking at the things around you 
looking at the buildings or the people who are onlookers. A uh, determined runner will look ahead, look to the finish, or look to where he or she is going. Uh, I'm not by any measure uh, an expert on uh, how to navigate New York City um, like a New Yorker. As I mentioned, I'm a Floridian um, and always will be. I, I still struggle to, that, that's the best of Joey, you know, <laughs> specifically. Um, I, I still struggle to understand how uh, 8 million people live on top of one another um, in the way that you guys do. It's amazing to me. Uh, kudos to you. Um, but I have gotten better. I've gotten better at, at hiding my foreign nature uh, to the city. Uh, the first couple of times my wife and I came here many years ago, uh, we acted like and, and stood out like the tourists that we so desperately try to avoid in, in Florida. Um, the ones that clog up all the roads and clog up all the restaurants and have no idea what they're doing. and no idea how to drive. Um, uh, we look like them uh, here, uh, walking on the streets. And, uh, and I figured out that the primary issue uh, that I had or we had was like eye discipline, right? Uh, awareness of where we are and what we're doing. Um, I had to stop like looking at the tops of the buildings. Um, I had to stop looking at all the people walking by me and around me. Um, I had to stop uh, looking like I had no idea where I was going or what I was doing. Um, and I had to start looking like, even if I didn't know where I was going um, or knew what I was doing, looking like I did, right? And uh, until I figured it out. And it took me some time to do that, but I needed to keep my, my eyes trained, I learned, uh, I think keep my eyes trained uh, ahead, keep my eyes trained on where I was going and not on the, the world around me. Mm. This race will, will be all the more difficult, the Christian race that is, if you spend the entire race looking around, gawking at the world around you, seeking comfort, is an affirmation, acceptance, escape, strength, instead of looking to Jesus. We were reading in the scripture reading earlier, and I was struck by Psalm 69, 12, 13, where I'll read it again. He said, I am the talk of those who sit in the gate, and the drunkards make songs about me. That, that, is, a, that is a striking statement. Right? The psalmist is writing, those who sit at the gate, the, those, the people who sat at the gate were the ones who shared all the information in the, in the city. And so those who sit at the gate, everybody's talking about him. Everybody's deriding him. Everyone's speaking ill of him. And the drunkards even are making songs about his calamity. He's the scourge of the city. He's on the talk of those. They sing about him. But then he says, but as for me, my prayer is not in me. He says, my prayer is to you. It does not matter what they say about me. It doesn't matter what they sing about me. It doesn't matter how much the world hates me. My prayer is to you, O Lord. Mm -hmm. The verb here is actually a compound word. It, it denotes a, two separate actions. One, to, to look away. And the second is to, to look to, look away from anything that is not Jesus and look to train your eyes on Christ. 
as you run this Christian race, what draws your attention away from Christ? Is it the bending of the enemy's bow, as the psalmist testifies about in Psalm 11? Is it fear of man? Do you find yourself tempted to retreat from the race in an effort to avoid persecution? Or even just to avoid feeling awkward with a neighbor or someone in the line to get a bagel? Are you tempted to adopt just a little bit of false teaching just so the people around you won't call you in the Neanderthal? By the way, the Neanderthal has never existed. (laughs) (laughs) Perhaps it's personal ambition. Are you drawn off course by the enticement of wealth and power? Are your eyes fixated on your career and not eternity? Or maybe your relationship has turned into an idol. Instead of seeking to honor Christ in that relationship, you're seeking to, to find comfort and peace and security in someone other than Christ. Do you idolize your spouse, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your friends? Could it be the boastful pride of life? Running the Christian race as far as tiring never stops. And sometimes you just need some me time. I can set this race down for a little while. I'll just pick it up again in a couple miles. It's no big deal, right? I'll cut I'll cut a corner here. Cut a corner get this. I lost my mother to cancer last summer. And she entered the hospital Memorial Day weekend with really terrible back pain, not knowing that she had cancer. She died six weeks later, having never left the hospital. It was a great trial for us, uh, the greatest trial of her life. While she was in the hospital, I sat with her almost every day, and we had a routine we would cycle through, sometimes multiple times a day. She was in a lot of pain, some extreme pain. And when she was suffering with either pain or anxiety, I would ask her to tell me the things that she's thankful for. Mm-hmm. Strange question to ask someone who's dying. Mm-hmm. And she would start listing them off. Inevitably, each time, she would end up talking about how thankful she was for Christ. Mm-hmm. And how he had saved her from her sins. And she would talk about how she was thankful for hope. And how she was thankful that she wasn't afraid to die. We would then pray and thank God for these things and open the Bible and read the Psalms. The greatest gift God could have given me during that time was to hear my mother cry out to Jesus Mm. continually on her final day here on earth. Mm. I knew he had stripped all of the distractions away Mm. and that her eyes were clearly fixated on Christ. Where do you run in times of great trial and despair? It's heartbreak, persecution. Are you tempted to pack up your tents and go home? The author extols his readers and us. Don't leave the race. 
There is no one or nothing better than casting your eyes on Jesus. He's the founder of your faith, meaning he's the source of your faith, the text tells us. But the Greek word for founder is archegos, meaning he's the chief example of our faith. One commentator wrote, he has opened the way to God and enables us to follow in his footsteps. He's not only the archegos, the chief example, but also the perfecter of our faith, meaning he's the finisher of our faith. He's the chief example, the trailblazer, the pioneer, the beginning. He's the perfecter, the finisher, the one who completes the end. All of our faith is wrapped up and tied into Christ. The author details the example Jesus set before us. What did he, what did he run for? Is right in the text. He says he ran for the joy of exaltation. The joy of exaltation. This joy of exaltation was set before Christ. Just as our race is set before us, so is his joy to be seated in the right hand of the throne of God. And Jesus looked at this race set out before him and he fixed his gaze on this joy. On the joy of obedience to his father. The joy of providing salvation for his people. The joy of being seated at the right hand of God, of finishing his work, of completing his race, perfectly accomplishing everything his father had tasked him with. He ran his race for the joy of knowing that he would provide, provide salvation to you and to me, knowing that he was the only way, our only hope. He ran his race for the joy of glorifying his father, Philippians 2.11. He ran his race for the joy of being highly exalted and having bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, Philippians 2.9, so that every knee should bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord, Jesus Christ is Lord, Philippians 2, 10 and 11. He looked upon this joy set before him. What did he do? He endured the cross, our text says. He endured the cross. He humbled himself to take on human form, to be born as a baby, to walk on his own creation, to live a life of absolute perfection, no sin, to live a life of suffering, of sorrow. As Isaiah exclaims, he is a man of sorrows. To live a life of rejection, alienation from the very creation to whom he gave life in breath. He humbled himself to the point of death on a cross, Philippians 2 But don't be mistaken. His greatest act of endurance wasn't the persecution. 2 Corinthians 5.21, he says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him... We might become the righteousness of God. He endured the cross. He also despised the shame. Despised the shame. This is a fascinating phrase. It means that the shame he would endure on our behalf meant nothing to him. Nothing at all compared to the prize that was set before him. The suffering and the persecution could not in no way divert his gaze from finishing the race that was laid out before him compared to the glory he would receive. Look to the great example. He ran the race perfectly for us. We run on account of him, for him, to him. Brothers and sisters, run the race that's been set before you with endurance. Don't sit on the sidelines. Don't punch out when it gets difficult. When trials press in on all sides. 
Don't fret when you meet trials of various kinds. Remember that you are not alone. Lighten the load of the unnecessary weight and sin that clings so closely to you. Be content to run the race that God, in fact, rejoice. Be thankful for the road for the race that God has set before you. And look at the great example of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He is the prize. It's in him and because of him that we have victory. Endure to the end. Finish the race. I would be remiss to not point out that the author of Hebrews, as he wrote this letter, also had in mind those readers who never got in the race to begin with. Those people who knew of Jesus Christ, but never bowed the knee. Those who had never placed the full weight of eternity on him alone. If that is you this morning, know this. It's not a question of if you will bow to me, but rather a question of when. If you do not bow to me before you meet him face to face, you will bow the knee to him in judgment. Hmm. And at that point, there is no hope. You will pay the penalty of your offenses, your sins, against a holy and righteous God. Hmm. Jesus Christ is the King of the universe. He is the Son of God. He is the Lord of lords and kings King of kings. And only through Jesus Christ can we find redemption. If you bow the knee to him now as your personal Lord and Savior and get in the race, you will be with him in glory. (laughs) Today is the day. What are you waiting for? Get in the race. (laughs) Heavenly Father, Lord, we Humbled, humbled by your son, humbled by the sacrifice that he made for us, that he made on our behalf from the cross, humbled by the fact that uh, the salvation is given to us as a free gift, that we have no means to pay for it, or we're paying for it. Humble, there's such a great God 